It's not the purpose for which I, we're gathered here this evening, but I did want to give you that, that update because especially since Chuck ended his uh, discussion, his comments rather with, the, uh, with that, uh, that prayer for Ukraine. Uh, we are tasked during the course of this quarter to uh, take a word, basically a, a, a different word each week. And uh, I have chosen to talk about the word covenant. Uh, we can turn over to Luke chapter 22 and we can see something that the Lord said uh, on the night that he's gathered with his disciples there in that upper room. And they're engaged in this, this Paschal meal. Uh, and during the, during the meal, or, or I should say after the meal, uh, the Lord institutes what we commonly call the Lord's Supper. Uh, the communion, the, the remembrance of the of the body and blood of Christ. And as he's doing that in verses uh, 19 and 20 of that passage, Luke chapter 22, the text reads, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The King James renders that um, the New Testament in my blood. Uh, the uh, New Living Translation renders that passage in verse 20. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The King James translation, which obviously was the translation that we used for, for a long time, renders this as being uh, the word testament, as in a, a, a wheel uh, after one would die. But uh, that's the, I, I like the way the New Living Translation puts it, uh, because even Albert Barnes uh, is, uh, is, is obviously a commentator that probably everybody who's ever studied the, picked up a commentary is, is aware of Barnes' notes. But using the King James Bible himself, Barnes says of this passage, he says the idea is evidently that of a compact, an agreement, a covenant to which there is so frequent reference in the Old Testament. I agree with Barnes. I think he's exactly correct. This is probably better translated as all the other English translations translate this as being, uh, I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority translate this as being the word covenant as opposed to testament. Um, the language in this passage in the connection with the words that Jesus says about his body and his blood uh, obviously uh, bring to our mind the language of the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, doesn't it? Uh, we can't help but see sacrifice in what the Lord is, has said here. Uh, we think about the sacrificial uh, animals that was part of uh, the Old Testament. We remember back in Exodus chapter 29 when the Lord has uh, told Moses how 
he wants his tabernacle to be built. And there there was the, the altar that would be erected on which the, the animal was to be sacrificed. And then it was said that they, they poured out the blood at the base, on the sprinkle on the base of the altar. Well, we get that idea of, of sacrifice. Jesus, as he makes this statement, this is the, the new covenant in my blood, is, is certainly referencing that Old Testament system of sacrifice. But of course, he's taking that upon himself. So there is that uh, inescapable connection with sacrifice. There's also the inescapable connection with Passover. Because this was at Passover when this event occurred. We see the blood of the animals that would have been sacrificed or not necessarily just sacrificed, but would have been killed and eaten uh, down in Egypt. We see that idea of the blood from the animals that were to be put on the, the lentils, the lentil of the door, the, the doorpost. Uh, the ones, of course, who had that blood applied to the doorpost, those in that household would be spared as the death angel would come and uh, uh, take the, the firstborn of every, uh, uh, of every family uh, in Egypt. Jesus so then appropriates this Passover language and he applies it to himself. He takes the language of Passover and applies it to himself. Those who would have the blood of Jesus applied to their hearts would be passed over as far as spiritual death is concerned. So again, that idea of, of, of the, the blood that is connected to Passover and the Passover of the death angel and the sacrificial system under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, uh, are certainly in play as Jesus makes this statement uh, that he is introducing this new covenant. Now, I think I can say that the majority of us would think um, probably in terms of two covenants, would we not? Normally think of two covenants. Well, we think of, of course, the, the Old Testament as being the, the, the first covenant that was sealed with the law of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And then, of course, the new covenant that Christ institutes. So there's two covenants that we think of. But I think if we expand that back a little bit, we actually find in the Old Testament at least five significant covenants with man that God has made with man. It's more than just two covenants. There's been at least five in the Old Testament. I want to look to that. Don't, don't throw rotten tomatoes at me just yet, but I think that the first of those covenants was with Adam and Eve. I think God made a covenant with Adam after the fall. I think there's some indication of a, of a post-fall covenant that God entered into with Adam, although we have no evidence of it, but we have some inferences that indicate it's, it's, it's implied, if not stated. Uh, we think about that because in Genesis 3 and 15, we see that promise of redemption. You know, you, you, you will bruise the, the heel, but he will crush the head. Uh, we find there that a, a promise of redemption. 
So God has entered into some type of agreement with Adam that even though he and Eve have sinned, there's some form, some way that that that, that redemption can still be theirs. Um, we see that Eve, uh, upon giving birth to Cain in, in, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, uh, acknowledges and praises God for blessing her with a child, with a man, yet she says. Uh, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, she said. So Eve is recognizing that God is still with her. He hasn't abandoned them. They've sinned. They've been cast out of the garden. But God hasn't just completely and forever abandoned them. We, we get that idea. And then we get down to verses 3 through 5 in Genesis chapter 4. And we read there about the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, as they come and bring their sacrifice. We'll remember that Cain brought a sacrifice of grain, sacrifice of the fields, and God was not pleased with that sacrifice. And Abel brought an animal and shed the blood and sacrificed the animal, and God was pleased with his sacrifice. Now, I would have to then ask, where did Cain and Abel get the idea that they were supposed to make a sacrifice? Where did Abel get the idea that God's preferred sacrifice would be, a, would be an animal sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood, if God didn't tell them that? So when I say that God has made some covenant with Adam, I think that we can, we can at least infer that God has given them some instructions and therefore there's some type of uh, a covenant relationship. Um, I, I think we have to conclude that God has given them, them some instruction. Uh, and, and if that is the case, there's a, there's a covenant that was involved, a covenant that's been instituted. Another example that gets us there uh, to that idea is, is Noah. In chapter 6 through 8, we find the, the story of the flood. And in chapter 8, we find uh, God um, bringing the wind, the waters abate. Moses, uh, Noah is, uh, uh, is, is, is coming off the ark. And what is the first thing that he does? He sacrifices, doesn't he? He has a sacrifice. Well, who told Noah that he's supposed to sacrifice? How did he know that that was what God would want him to do? to sacrifice these animals. So there's something, that's, something that, is, uh, that is going on in these relationships. And of course, we know specifically that God has uh, instituted a covenant relationship with Noah or entered into a covenant with Noah uh, because in Acts, uh, not Acts, but Genesis chapter uh, 8, uh, verses 21 and 2, I believe it is, uh, there is the, the statement that God said he made covenant with, with Noah that he would no longer destroy the earth by water, uh, by flood. So there's a, there's a form of covenant. Uh, the Bible says that. Uh, there's also this Abrahamic covenant. In the Abrahamic covenant, uh, we find in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we're going to talk about that one just a little bit more, but we find here that, that covenant relationship that God instituted with Abraham. It would be this covenant that God makes with Abraham and which would be fulfilled in Jesus, obviously. 
uh, that through one of his descendants that all the, world, all the nations of the world would be blessed. But God gives Abraham assurance. He says he'll be his shield, his defender. God promised Abraham that he would possess the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And Abraham says, how can I know that's true? Fairly good question, isn't it? How do I know this is really going to happen? After all, it's going to be hundreds of years later before it materializes. So Abraham was wanting some, I guess like us, he would, he would want some evidence that, it's, that what he's saying is true. So this question is asked, Oh Lord God, how do I know, how am I to know that I will possess it? Well, Abraham has already been told that he personally is not going to possess his land. It's going to be his descendants several generations down. But as far as Abraham is concerned, he is going to possess it because God has promised it to him. It's going to be his in, through his descendants. So we know that this man, Abraham, is a man that is known through his, uh, by his faith. Uh, he's called the father of the faithful. Jesus is even going to refer to that when Jesus talks to the uh, Jewish leaders of his day. If you were truly the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, he would say. So it seems maybe strange to our ears thinking of Abraham as being this great man of faith, but here Abraham seems to show some doubt, doesn't he? Not the only time, by the way, but he does show some doubt. So sometimes when we have doubts, it helps us to, to see that the great heroes of faith also at times had their doubts. And yet they stayed faithful through their doubts. And I think that's something that we need to, we need to be reminded of that Abraham was a man just like we are. He had his doubts just like sometimes we do. But, but it also helps us to see that even with his doubts, God wasn't angry at Abraham. In fact, in response to that question, he did something that was, that was really remarkable because he confirmed to Abraham that his covenant was going to be true. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And he said to him, Genesis 15, that is, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, I remember uh, either in a Bible class or in a... Um, uh, in, a, in a sermon fairly recently, so uh, I'm going to be saying something that Chuck has already said, uh, because this is really this is really an ancient Middle uh, Near East uh, ritual. You know, we we're going to go down, we're going to buy a piece of property, we're going to go to the lawyer's office, we're all going to sign some papers, and we're going to covenant to do certain things, and we're going to sign a contract. But that's not the way they did it in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, if two men made a, a, a binding agreement with one another, 
They'd slaughter some livestock and leave part of it over here and part of it over there, and they would together walk through between the pieces of the livestock, and they would then uh, uh, swear an oath or proclaim a, a covenant that existed between them. And that ceremony would have two meanings. Uh, number one, it symbolized the unity between the two parties, the commitment that they have to fulfill the promises that they made to one another. That's one of the symbolisms of it. But the second one is, if I don't keep my end of this covenant, that I'm going to be as this dead animal. I'm going to be worthy of death if I don't keep my end of the bargain. So we're going, to, we're going to see that, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because I, I, want to, I want to tie that back into another thought. But the next covenant we have is obviously the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, we see in, in Exodus chapter 29, Leviticus, uh, we also see in Leviticus chapter 1, uh, the first five verses, that the blood of the atonement sacrifice, as I said earlier, would be sprinkled upon the altar. So we find that that covenant is confirmed with giving of the, of the law, but God has entered into this covenant relationship with this special people who are the descendants of Abraham, the direct descendants of Abraham. Now there is a fifth covenant that I think we can all agree that, that is in existence, and it's the only one that's not sealed with blood, and that is the Davidic covenant. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we find there, uh, you know, David wanted to build a, house for God, build a house for God, and God forbade him from doing so. But God said, I'm going to do you one better. I'm going to do better than building me a house here on this earth. He, he said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his, his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That Davidic covenant that God entered into with David promised that from the lineage of David that there would come one who would sit on the, on the throne of David forever. In other words, the kingdom of God forever. Not literal kingdom, not in literal Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21 and 2. That kingdom would be established, it would be confirmed, it would be forever. So we see that it's not just this new covenant that we have with, that God speaks of, that, God, that, that, that the Son, God the Son speaks of in Luke chapter 22, is not just a covenant that is associated with Passover. Uh, he makes this, uh, this blood sacrifice a distinguishing characteristic of the new covenant that he's entered into with man. This new covenant. So he says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. See, this covenant that Jesus is instituting fulfilled all prior covenants, 
All of those other covenants were looking forward to the coming of this covenant. They were all about the promises that were to come. This covenant was about the fulfillment of those promises. It's the inbreaking of the fulfillment as time is going on some 2,000 or more years ago. Jesus sat with them in a physical form in the presence of other people just like us as the fulfillment of all of the hopes and dreams of all of God-fearing people from Adam until then. And as we look back upon this event, he is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of God-fearing people from that point forward. But as Jesus comes, he says, I come in fulfillment of all of these, of these hopes. So it's not just a new covenant in the sense that there might be other covenants yet to come. So it's not just that. It is the fulfillment of the covenant God has made with Abraham. It is the fulfillment of the covenant God made with David. Both of those things are true. Now, I said I want to tie that Abrahamic covenant in, into another, in with another thought. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 15. Again, this is probably nothing new for you, but in, in, in verse 17 of that chapter, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, that is, the pieces of the animal that's laid opposite one another. Abraham is... Essentially, uh, he's either dozing or he's asleep. He sees this, this occur, but Abraham, God doesn't ask Abraham to walk hand in hand with him between the pieces of this slain, these slain animals. God walked through the animal in the form of this smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Webster's Dictionary says that there, this idea of covenant is the covenant of redemption. It's the mutual agreement between father and son. Mutual agreement between the father and the son. Respecting the redemption of sinners by Christ. So that leads us to do some investigation, do a little digging. What's represented by that smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? Well, I'll submit to you that I believe the smoking fire pot, the incense pot, is representative of God the Father. We find language that, that is like that in Exodus when it said, you know, God come down to the mountain and the smoke the smoke would come in the mountain. When God is in the tabernacle, the smoke of his presence was there. 
we find references to that in Revelation chapter 15 in verse 8. The idea of God in his presence, smoke filled the, the very place where God, God's presence would be. And I think if we look at what is said about the sun, uh, the flaming torch would be representative of God the sun. Uh, Psalms 27 and 1, uh, we could also see Psalms 132 that speak of Christ in those terms, uh, Psalms 132 and verse 17. But I like, the, I, I like best what Daniel says about the, the Son of Man. There's uh, the, the, the image of the Son of Man that, that is given to us in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. You can look at that and you can tell me I'm way off base if you choose. But in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14, language that's very reminiscent of what Daniel had seen with the Son of God, we see again this idea of the flaming torch, uh, uh, eyes with like flaming uh, uh, torches in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 14. So I'm going to submit to you that I believe that when we see this, um, this covenant being confirmed to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 17, these two parties that walk between these two dead animals are God the Father and God the Son as represented by the, uh, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. I think that's what they symbolize anyway. I think we see in this uh, the idea that God and Christ walk hand in hand between the, the, the two pieces of these two dead, anim these dead animals and that they're confirming the covenant. I think that's what we find there. That, that covenant then would have been between God the Father and God the Son. And it shows that if God, does, you remember, if, if, if we don't keep this covenant, we're as dead as these animals. We're as good as dead. So it shows that if God doesn't keep the covenant, if the covenant is not kept rather, it would be God that would be killed. Striking thought, isn't it? Yet I think that's what we are supposed to see. It brings the image of Christ as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying to, uh, 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 praying to God, the Father, and he said, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. He, 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 he knows what he is about to, to, uh, uh, what is about to happen. That covenant had been entered into thousands of years earlier. That covenant has already been confirmed. God made that promise to Abraham that all families of the earth will be blessed. This was going to be fulfilled on the cross. That covenant that was made back there in Genesis 15 and verse 17, that covenant that was made could not be broken. But it was broken, not by God, but by us. As we break that covenant, the law demanded death. When the covenant is broken, God demands death. 
And we know from Paul's writing in, in the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. That's the, that's the sin, the penalty for sin is death. But God's love provides the escape from those consequences. God paid the price for our breaking covenant. We broke covenant, God didn't. But he died so that we don't have to. Paul tells us, but the gift of God is eternal life. We have a covenant relationship with God, but we fail that covenant all too many times. I know at least I do. At the cross, then, we see this, this coming together. We, come, we, we see God's necessity based on his law that sin has to be punished. So we see that, that, that law was fulfilled. The covenant promise that death was the consequence of sin is fulfilled. But also there is the love. The love that caused Jesus to go through the beatings and the scorning and all of the things that he went through, be willing to go to the cross and, and it was love that kept him on the cross. Because this was what he and the Father had committed to those thousands of years before. Law said, you deserve death for your sins because you broke covenant. But love said, I'll take that punishment for you. I'll die for you. So we see that in Jesus so our final question is, we don't have time for. Uh, I wanted to get into whether, you know, what the Bible says in regards to this, whether this is the final covenant or not. And uh, uh, I'll just make it short. Yes, it is. So we'll stop at that. Thank you very much for your time.